Thank you. That was, uh, that was a better presentation than I did yesterday. So thanks, Jason. That was, wow, I need to write that down and do it next time. In the first service, I put my table in the wrong spot. That's why they carried it up here for me, because I was way over there. It, I felt weird over there, too, but I, we, I was really close to that section. We had a great time down there at that end. Yeah. Yeah, this thing about identity is so important. It's, it's, it's really one of the most important things I've ever learned in my life. I came to Christ when I was 17. This amazing nurse um, in the hospital shared the gospel with me. Uh, I'd heard it before. I'd heard Christianity presented before, and I didn't really like it. But this lady, this, she was a single mom from West Virginia. I, I don't know her name, but that's all I remember about her. But she... Uh, she shared the kingdom with me about my identity. It was incredible how she did it. And um, from her own identity into my identity. And I just had never experienced that before. And it, it transformed my life. And so it's, it's been a big deal to me. So when I came to Christ, I had that sense of, okay, now I'm in the kingdom of God. And somehow God's put me together to walk in his kingdom. And I figured, I just assumed that that involved what I love to do, right? I mean, if, if I love to do certain things that are legal, uh, and, and why do I love to do those things? Because somehow I was born liking those things. Why was I born that way? And so I thought, well, being in the kingdom must have something to do with living those things out in some kind of transformative way. So that's kind of how I began the journey. And um, yeah, I always wanted to be a police officer, and that's what I did. I went, went to college and met my wife, and got married and went to the police department, and that's what I did. And on that journey, I kept learning more and more about my own unique identity. And the more I understood about my identity, the more I could impact people around me who had no identity. So if I don't have an identity, it's pretty hard to help people with no sense of identity. I mean, that, so you're just sort of both all wandering around with no sense of identity, and therefore we get our identity from other people or other things. If you get your identity from another person or a political party or a religious group or something like that, you end up with enemies. You have to. So if my identity comes from a group, then what do I do with the other groups that have other identities that are not in my group? I don't associate with them. And I fight with them. That's what happens. And what really happens when you have no sense of identity is you have bullying bullying occurs inside your culture. That's how you know your kids have no identity is because then they're able to be bullied because you cannot bully someone who has an identity. You can beat up or kill someone with an identity, but you can't bully a person who has an identity, but you can bully anyone who has no identity. So if I get my identity from social media, I'm in big trouble, big trouble. And that's what's killing our kids because their identity is not strong. We're worried about them hearing about evolution. That's ridiculous. I'm worried about them being on social media. That's where, that's where they're dying. So why? Because they don't have a sense of identity. So if this person doesn't like me or these 20 people don't like me, I die because they're in charge of my identity. Wow, that is dangerous. But that means the parent has no identity. So then they go into a school with teachers that don't have a sense of identity. I don't care if it's a Christian school or not. A teacher gets their identity not from the school that they teach in, but from God. 
So if you have teachers with no identity and kids with no identity and parents with no identity, then you have a country with no identity. And a country with no identity doesn't know what it's doing, ever. And if you have a bunch of countries with no identity, you have constant war and terrorism. So it seems like the answer to all those problems is that I find my identity first. That seems like the easiest solution. So that's important. So how do you know your identity, of course, is the big question. In fact, the question is, how do we know anything that we know? Let's be really philosophical. How do we know anything that we know at all? And isn't most of what we know wrong? Like we think we know something and then we find out that's not right, that's wrong. So 2,800 years ago, about, Aristotle, smart guy, good guy, smart guy, he wrote a work called Physics. And in that work, he was trying to figure out the issue of what we would call gravity. Why do things not fall off the planet? There's a good question. Not everyone was worried about that. But Aristotle was concerned about it. Like, I don't care. As long as they don't fall off, why do I care? Those people don't amount to much in life. But some people care. So he wanted to know, why don't things just fall off the planet? So you never grow unless you ask questions, right? And so anyway, so he comes up with this idea. Well, they don't fall off because they like it here. So that makes sense. They have a sense of belonging here. So why would they leave? So for the next 2,000 years, the greatest minds in science said things stay on the planet because they like it here. (laughs) 2,000 years. So like, if you were smart, you would say, I know this table really likes the earth. Because no matter what I do, it won't leave. And every, all the scientists are like, that, that dude is well-trained, man. <laughs> then, though, then though, unfortunately for Aristotle, in the, like 1687, Isaac Newton is thinking, that, maybe that's not the best Maybe that's not the best reason things are here. And so the interesting thing about, so, so 1687. So he's thinking about it. But the interesting thing about Isaac Newton is he's, he's a believer. He's a follower of Christ. So he thinks about it in a different, he wants to know what's happening with things on the earth. But he wants to know in a different way than Aristotle wanted to know things. So Sir Isaac Newton thinks about it mixed with his view of God. So he mixed his incredibly brilliant identity in physics with his relationship with God and he figures out that the reason things are on the earth is for the same reason that things are attracted to God, there's a force involved. There's a force and so things are on earth because something on the earth is holding them there and it's gravity. And so all of Aristotle's thinking goes to a completely different level because what Aristotle thought to be true was in fact not true. So now we have Newtonian physics. Now that is true. So for 200 years, not 2,000 years, 200 years until 1910, Newtonian physics, that's it, man. If you're smart, if you're really smart, we know that things are on the planet because of gravity. And gravity is it, and we've got gravity figured out until 1910. Then Einstein comes on the scene 
And he goes, now wait a second. Huh. Huh. I don't think that's right. I think gravity's different than what Mr. Newton thought. I think gravity is much more, that gravity has to do with time and space. It's much more than just a force that holds things down. And so he comes up with a completely different idea, which just expands Newtonian physics out into a whole new realm from 1910 to about 1950. So you notice how long we know stuff is getting shorter. Isn't that interesting? So my time of how much I'm pretty sure that's true is getting shorter and shorter. Then in the 80s comes quantum mechanics. And this whole other world opens up. And from the 80s onward, we don't even know anymore. (laughs) Like we're afraid to say anything. Because we just don't know. And what's interesting about quantum physics and quantum mechanics is the deeper you go into it, the more mysterious it becomes. So how do we know anything? What do you, what do you like this morning, there's things that you are certain about. I'm sure there is. I'm certain that you feel certain about things. My question to you is, how do, how do you know you're right, you're correct? How do you know? And the most basic question of all is, how do you know who you are? How do you know who you are? From what reference point are you coming to know anything else in the world? From what identity are you coming forth to know anything else in the world? That's a big question. So who talks about how to know your identity? Who talks about that? Well, actually people did. They have for a long time. So we have the Hebrew prophets writing about it. They're fascinating because Hebrew prophets, Hebrew writers, are the only historians that are critical of their own leadership. No other historians, like Pharaoh's historians, never criticized him. Because if they criticized him, he killed them. But the Hebrew poets were self-critical. Are you? They were self-critical. They criticized their culture. Like, we're not paying attention to poor people. It's all about rich. That's how they talked. And their leadership also killed them. But they didn't care because they said, we're going to say what God says because our identity doesn't come from our rulers. Our identity comes from God. And they started to write about that. How do you know your identity? How do you hear from God? And so the prophets started to talk about hearing from God themselves. And so you have the Bible, this unbelievable, like if I, if I didn't believe in Jesus, I would still be amazed by the Bible just because of its uniqueness. And so in the scriptures, we have this, this deep sort of digging into the identity of humanity and even individuals. It's really fascinating. And that's the journey that you're going to go on over these next couple of weeks. It, it's going to be exciting. It's going to be amazing and thrilling to you. And it'll change you. And then to hear from God, because you're not going to know your identity if you can't hear from God. Just down to the most logical, simple truth. If God, if God can't speak, then how do I know who I am? I would just have to tell myself. And that's what all of us do. We tell ourselves who we are. And we're always wrong. 
This is how wrong we are. Let me give you an example from the Bible, how wrong we are. So in the Bible, think of the Bible as a series of case studies through since the beginning of humanity up until the time of Acts. So there, there's a study of humanity, all different cultures, all different times, and it's case studies. How do people succeed? What causes them to fail? How do governments rise? How do they fall? What's the end look like? All this, how did, what was the beginning? Like all of this, case studies. So you can think of an issue and then go, I'm just gonna look for a case study from history, pull out the Bible, find one. I can use Babylonian case studies, Persian case studies, Hebrew case studies, Greek case, it's all there. It's all there, Western, Eastern, all there. It's the beauty of the Bible. So let's pull out a case study on identity. So there's this guy at the, there's this guy right after the time of Jesus. His name is Saul of Tarsus. So that's who he is and that's where he's from. Do you know the Bible never talks about, God never refers to people, God doesn't ever in terms of political parties or religions, never. God, people do in the Bible call each other that. God only refers to people by their names and geographic locations. That's the only way he refers to people, ever. He never identifies people even by really ethnicity. It's more by location. So Saul of Tarsus, there he is. There he is, this guy. So when he's growing up, he's trying to figure out his identity. So one of the ways we learn our identity is where we go to school or who we study under, right? Or who's influencing us from early on as our mind is developing through the developmental stages of our life. And so early on, so around bat mitzvah age, bar mitzvah age for him, 12 or so, he joins a school. And because his parents really, 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 really love him, he doesn't go to public school, he goes to private school. Um, <laughs> I'm saying that very tongue-in-cheek, by the way. <laughs> Love public school. Anyway, so he goes to this elite school, but at the time that he's going to school in Judaism, there's only two, really, identities. There's the Shammai school and the Hillel school. Two schools. The Hillel school is kind of the liberal, nice, friendly, we're Jews that love the world kind of people. Nope. He goes to this one. Shammai school, where he's mostly influenced by, and these are like, we're the only ones in the world that matter. Like, we like these kind of schools, don't we? I don't say to my kid to the school where he's the only one in the world that matters. And in that school, their belief is, in the Shammai school, that Jews, the Jewish people, are the great race of God, and that all others, not so important. In fact, they're not so important that they probably should be just done away with. And so the Shammai school, the graduates of that school carried around with them 18 edicts, they were called, of why Gentiles are worthless and what should be done with them. This school is the dominant school of thought at the time of Jesus. So Jesus is speaking counter to this dominant school of Jewish thought. Very different. And when he goes and hangs out with Samaritans and Syrophoenicians and tax collectors, whew, no, no, no. We don't do that. So this guy, Saul, is educated in this way. 
The sort of interesting thing about Saul, though, that kept him from really buying in all the way into the Shammai school was he had Roman citizenship. And if you're in this school, you don't have anything to do with Rome. So interestingly, it's like there was some plan going on in Saul's life that he didn't know about, but he has Roman citizenship, so he can't go quite all the way into the ethnic cleansing idea. He's kind of on the edge of it, but he's committed to it. And so when he graduates, because he is so sold out for God, because their school is so sold out for God, more sold out for God than anyone else on the planet, because of that, he decides he's going to commit himself to getting rid of the other people, especially these followers of Jesus. Whether they're Jews or Gentiles, doesn't matter. They're out. They're going to jail. They're going to die. And so they, he carries around these edicts with him. In fact, when the Shammai school and the Hillel school were debating whether to have the edicts, because the Hillel school didn't want them, the Shammai school invited the Hillel school together to, to discuss whether to have them or not and then killed the leaders of the Hillel school, and so they won. That's how they did it. So they were like terrorists. They were like a group of student terrorists. The, Arab, or the Afghan word for the, a student terrorist is Taliban. That's what it is. That's what it means, student. So the Shammai were that, basically. And so they went around and arrested people that violated religious law and killed them or imprisoned them. So that's what Saul does. That's where he's coming from. And he's going to be the best because that's his drive. I'm going to be the best. I'm going to be the most zealous. He says this, we read in his own words over and over again. The tribe of Benjamin, greatest, best, Pharisee of Pharisees, all that. So he's riding around. When these guys traveled around, the Shammai guys, when they traveled around, they would meditate on Ezekiel chapter 1. That's what they would do to be disciplined, you know. Like they were the special forces of religion. And so they meditated on the Bible. Ezekiel chapter 1. It's called the chariot throne of God. And so if you read Ezekiel chapter 1, in Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel is giving a vision of the chariot throne of God. And it's the goal of this school to one day see God like that. That's their highest goal. If we could just see God in the chariot throne of God. Like Dave was talking about, we have access to the throne of God right now all the time. Amen. Be good to figure out how to take advantage of that, wouldn't it? So anyway, so that's what they do. So they meditate on Ezekiel 1. One day, God, I'm going to see you. And the dream is that when they see God on his throne, God is going to look down at these guys, these Shammai people, and say, you are the best. You're my favorites. I love you more than anyone else. And when, we, when, I, when they see God's face, history will end and the Shammai will be the rulers of the kingdom. Wow. That's amazing, isn't it? Too bad for everyone else, but if you're one of them, that's awesome. So that's what Saul of Tarsus does. It's probable that when he was riding back and forth to find people to arrest him, that he was meditating on Ezekiel chapter one as a disciplined Pharisee. So one day, we know from Acts chapter 9, right? Saul is riding along with, with papers to arrest Christians, followers of Jesus, 
to arrest them and have them killed. And it says in Acts chapter 9 that he's fuming. He's breathing out hostility and hatred towards the followers of the way. He hates them. With every part of who he is, he's committed to God for the cause of God to get rid of these scourges, these things that pollute humanity. That's what he's on his way to Damascus to do. And so, in that beautiful frame of mind, he meditates on the throne room of God. And guess what happens? He sees it. Acts chapter 9. He sees it. And, and it opens. And here's the day when God's going to say, you're my favorite one even of the Shammai. You're the best one. You're the greatest. You're right. No one's as good as you. And history is over and you're going to rule with me. That's what he's waiting for to happen. But he happens to be completely wrong about everything he thinks. <laughs> because guess who's sitting on the throne? Jesus. Wait a second, what? What are you doing up there? Like, I don't even believe in you. Like, how can you be there? I don't even believe in you, and things only exist if I believe in them. Isn't that right? God only exists if I say he exists, and I believe in him, right? Isn't that true? Because I'm the reference point for all things. Isn't that right? Wrong. That is wrong. That's not even a smart idea. That idea is so dumb. Jesus is sitting on the throne. And not only is he sitting on the throne, history is not going to end. They're in the middle of history. Shoot. And you're not winning and you're not good. In fact, Saul, you're not persecuting just people. You're not hurting just people. You're hurting and persecuting me personally. That's how wrong you are about what you think about everything. Wow. Wow. And Paul just goes blind. Saul, he's just blind. Everything, it, what, a, what is there to see anymore? Everything that I've believed and thought, wrong. Everything about myself, everything about God, everything about these Gentiles, wrong, wrong, wrong. And he's blinded. What else is there to see? There's nothing else to see. What would happen if Jesus came to you, say later today or tonight, and he comes to have a conversation with you and you tell him everything about yourself that you believe to be true? Wouldn't that be an interesting conversation? And he would go, he'd be going, really? You think that about yourself? Wow. Like, who bewitched you? I mean, imagine that, because that's what you can do this afternoon, by the way. Because you can walk into the throne room of God anytime you want to and find out the truth about yourself. It, it is called confession. It is called you telling the truth about what you think about God and yourself to God. That's confession. It's beautiful. It's so powerful and beautiful. But imagine you could do that. That's what's happening to Saul of Tarsus. And he's gone blind because he realizes how deceived he has been. And do you know where he was deceived? In the Torah. In the Bible. He was even deceived. 
like the magic book didn't protect him? No, because you know why? Because he was reading it in a false identity. Satan quotes scripture all the time. The book is not magic. The truth is what's powerful. The truth. And so he's blinded. He doesn't know what to do. What do I do? And then there's this other guy over here, Ananias, who is a believer. And he's fortunately having a quiet time. And in his quiet time, he has a vision. And in his vision, he finds out something that he believes that's wrong. God says to him, hey, I want you to go talk to this guy, Saul of Tarsus. Wait a second. Whoa, 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 whoa. Lord, hold on one second. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Who? Who? You know, the guy, the Taliban guy. What now? What? You know, the guy that's killing all your people. What now? What? So you just keep saying that over and over to God. He keeps saying the same thing back to you. No, that guy. I want you to go talk to him. So then we do what we have to do. We have to explain to God what's happening because he obviously doesn't know. (laughs) Like if you knew who that was, there is no way you would be telling me to go over there. And I know you wouldn't because I know you don't like that guy. And what you know is wrong, wrong, wrong. I want you to go in your true identity, which is a comforter and encourager of people, not people you like, all people, a comforter of even enemy people. I want you to go in your true identity over to this guy and tell him the truth about who he really is. He doesn't know. He thinks he's a murderer and all this kind of stuff. And I says, and I think that too. Uh, with him. I agree, he and I agree on this point. No, he's wrong and you're wrong. So Ananias, to live in his true identity, to see one of the most amazing things he's ever seen in his life was to see this kind of guy transformed. He has to trust God that God knows something that he doesn't know. That's stunning, isn't it? God must not watch the news or he watches the other channel. Those liars... So Ananias, Ananias can look at God and go, I am not doing that. I am not being weak. I am not showing weakness to these people that have hurt me. I will not do that. And Ananias will go down the drain. He will die in his identity right there with that no. You will will miss the amazement. This guy will become one of the greatest deliverers of the Gentiles that's ever lived. But he, I need you and your identity to go talk to him. So yes, okay. So he goes and they meet together. Acts 9, 15 and 16. God says to Ananias, I will show this guy his true identity and what he must suffer and what he must do as a defense, as a person that goes out and gets the Gentiles. I will give him his true identity. I want you there. This is a community group. This is an amazing community group, a men's group. What an amazing men's group. But see, like, the reality is, this is just like a Thursday afternoon in Damascus. It's not some magic time. 
It's like a day in an afternoon in a time when God does this incredible thing because both men do what God says and they show up in the same place. And God's like, okay, let's go get the Gentile world now. Do you believe that could happen in your group? Are you in a group? Let me tell you how it doesn't happen. You're not in a group. Then it doesn't happen. But in a group, this kind of stuff happens. Because God is a God of relationship. That's how he operates in the Father, Son, and Spirit. It's the only way he operates. Relationship with me and him and out like this. Love God, love your neighbor. Love God, love your neighbor. If you just love God and stand here and never talk to your neighbor, you do not love God. You cannot. If you loved him, you'd be over here. And over here or here is where you will learn your true identity in community. And then you will hold each other accountable to live out your identities together. And your life becomes this incredible journey. That's what's happening here. Acts chapter 9. That's what's going on here. And so, so Paul realizes, saw, realizes his true identity. He says it in Galatians chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. In my mother's womb, isn't that interesting? In my mother's womb, I was set aside for the Gentiles. Not on the road to Damascus, no, in his mother's womb. On the road to Damascus, he says, at the right time, God revealed my true identity to me. When was that? On the Damascus road. But from the time he was born, God was raising him to be the great defender, protector of the Gentiles coming into the kingdom. How? By having him raised in the only school that committed itself to keeping the Gentiles out. So that when this school said, who will defend these Gentiles who say they come into the kingdom? One of their own guys stands up, one of their best students, and goes, I will defend them. And they're like, oh no, that's one of our guys. What's he doing over there? And he goes, my name's not Saul, by the way, it's Paul. I'm not that, I'm this. And I was made to go to the Gentiles in places where no one has ever gone before me. What? And so Paul's whole life of self-centered, self-protection, self-indulgence, destroying everyone that's not as good as him and trying to prove to himself how great he is becomes redeemed into the greatest education to be the greatest messenger to the Gentiles ever. God takes a damaged past and turns it. He doesn't just wash it away. He doesn't, he, for, he doesn't just forgive it. He transforms it into the greatest weapon you ever have is your messy past. That is like the greatest thing I've ever heard. So when Paul says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, he's not saying like, he's not like, there is no, like he's some, he's written a speech. He's saying, let me tell you from my own life, the things I did in the past, I murdered people in the past. Then strangely, God calls me to reach those people. Huh, that's funny. He says, but in my past, there's no condemnation. When I look back there, when I look back in my past and God has redeemed it, there is nothing there, but thank God for what you did in my past. 
Thank God for what you, and the enemy can't go back in his past and say, hey, you murdered people. It's like, no, 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 no. That was in my false identity. But in my true identity back there, I, I became one of the greatest speakers ever in Jewish speaking styles and in Hellenistic chiastic styles of, of, of oratory. That's what was happening there in my past. But out of my true identity, I used it in a destructive manner. But when I met Christ, all of that became critically valuable to me. There's no condemnation there. There's no accusation back there. I am free in my true identity. What, what is your true identity? And what do you think about yourself? How do you see yourself in a way that if Jesus was looking into your eyes, he would go, no. Like, who told you this? Jesus only talks to people in the identities he gave them when he knit you together in your mother's room. That's the only name he'll ever call you. No matter what you do, that is the only way he'll refer to you. He will never speak to you as if you should be ashamed of yourself. Never. He will never speak to you as if you should feel guilty about what you've done. Never. He will never speak to you as if you should be afraid of the future. Never. Every time you feel fear, guilt, or shame, I promise you it is not him talking to you. Because when he talks to you, this is what you feel like. You're kidding. What did you just call me? You're, you're kidding. Surely you're, you, you call me that? Yes. And here's his challenge to you. Why are you not living like that? Why are you living like this? This isn't even true. It, you know, and then you, you watch Jesus in the Gospels and the prostitute is crawling in on the ground to him, crying, undoes her hair, which is one of the most scandalous things she could possibly do. And the Pharisees are like, oh my gosh, what has happened? And she's crawling down there. We would never... Uh, be involved in anything like this. The prostitute could probably name them as clients, I bet. But she's crawling in and she washed in Jesus' feet and she's acting, listen, she's acting like a prostitute. Here's Jesus' question to you. Why are you acting like a prostitute? What are you doing? Why should she, like, because I know what I do. I know who I am. I, I can give you all the facts of why I'm a prostitute. You're not a prostitute. You're my daughter. That's what he calls her. Hey, daughter, why is my daughter acting like a prostitute? Prostitute is not an identity. That is not an identity. You're messed up. You're, 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 this is a false identity. Act, why are you acting like this? Act like my daughter. Don't act like what these idiots call you. Act like my daughter. Will you act like my daughter? Because that's the only way I'm going to talk to you. She stands up. She leaves. Good luck. You're forgiven. Go act like my daughter. There's the, there it is. There's the transformation. Oh, you mean I'm not a prostitute? Nope. <laughs> Have I ever been one? Never. In your mother's womb, I made a daughter. I want you and I need you to go live like my daughter lives and stop acting like you're not that. Go and stop separating yourself from who you are. Sin no more. Go. And I will take care of these guys. Trust me. She walks out of there like, yeah, all right. <laughs> How fast? Like that. Bam. 
There is no condemnation here, Jesus says. There is no condemnation. When you walk in Christ Jesus in your true identity, go walk like that. And I will take all the condemnation on myself for you on your behalf. Go and walk like my daughter. What is he telling you to go walk like? What are you walking like? Confession, (laughs) repentance. Let him tell you who you are and walk like what he calls you. Walk like that. Then dead things become alive. Dead ideas become alive. Dead emotions become alive. Dead dreams come alive. The goal in meeting Jesus is to come alive in your true identity. Father, thank you for these people. Lord, thank you so much for them and the names that you called them from the day they were born. And Lord, we just want to live in our true identity with you. We want to hear it. We want to learn to hear you well and often, and we want to walk in our true identity. We want to lay aside false identity. We're just tired of it. It's just so discouraging and dead. Lord, bring us alive. And Lord, we want to give back to you. So I'm just going to bless the offering right now as just we just transition out. Lord, we just, we just want to give back to you. We want to give back in order that others can be transformed. Lord, but whatever is dead in my life this morning, would you make it alive again? Lord, there's ideas I've had in my mind about businesses, about outreach, about all kinds of stuff that have gone dead. Will you make them alive again? Lord, there's relationships in my life that have gone dead. Would you raise them to life again? Up alive in my true identity. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.